<clears throat> we're back to Colossians, chapter 2. Those of you who haven't been here, we're uh, studying the book of Colossians with a special emphasis on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, I thought that was an appropriate thing for us to kind of to look at um, and recognize um, how it is that we grow in Christ. So today we're in chapter 2. The text for the sermon is actually larger than the sermon text, if that makes any sense whatsoever. We're, it's like four parts on this larger text that we'll be doing. So we're going to focus on verses 8 through 10 today, but I'll read the larger text for us this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, even as we hear your word preached this morning. Give us a greater love for your word. Write it on our hearts and fill our mouths with it. Help us to know it and speak of it to others, that they too might know the great hope and power found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Um, as I mentioned in Sunday school, I'm a little weird. And one of the weird things that I used to do, I don't do this as much as I, I did because it drives Amy crazy because I don't know what channels they're on. But I, I used to watch Christian television and see what it is that other people were so entranced by. And essentially, often what I found is that they were offering... Uh, not just Christ, but kind of Christ and something else. There was always sort of something else you needed to to have real power in Christ. There was something else that you needed to kind of be almost an elite sort of Christian. That there were ordinary sort of, sort of second class kind of Christians, and but but you know, depending on who you listen to, there was always something different you needed to become one of the elite. And I mentioned, of course, Benny Hinn. And for Benny Hinn, you, you sort of need the anointing, of course. You know, you've got to have that anointing by God. And there's a sense in which every Christian has it. 
There's not something new that you need to receive. Sometimes it's send in your money so that you get the holy hanky or the, you know, the thorn from Sharon or something like that. The special water that came from the river Jordan, you know, and then you, you'll receive the healing that you want or you'll receive the power or the, whatever it is that answer to, special answer to prayer that you want. It's almost like, you know, the whole thing with the relics prior to the Reformation all over again. Okay. Except now you just mail your money away and you get the artifact. It's not just in on TV, it's not just on the radio, but sometimes in churches. Come forward and be slain in the Spirit. Come forward and receive the, the gift of tongues, and, and then you will walk in power and obedience. Then. It's attractive, isn't it? In the sense of, we, maybe I'm just weird, but there are times when we struggle with the reality of our sin. And as a result, we feel sort of empty. We, we struggle with the sorrow and the sadness and we feel sort of empty. And what we want is to feel sort of full and alive and, and empowered and all of these things. And it's tempting to go to those places to find that thing that they're offering and forget that we already have it. That's what was going on in Colossae at that time. They were being told that there was something else they could have, and then they would have the fullness. And Paul, again, is telling them that they have it all in Christ. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus needs no supplemental philosophy or intermediaries, and that probably sounds really strange right now, doesn't it? But it will hopefully all make sense when we get to the end of this. And the first part of this is really a warning. Watch out. Someone wants to take you captive. That's what he's saying to them. This is the first of three warnings that Paul is going to issue to the Christians in Colossae. And remember, this is not just written to the leaders. This is also written to the people, the congregation. And so he's saying to them, not just, okay, he's not just saying to the elders, Marty, Mike, Dick, watch out. There are people who are going to come and try and steal away the sheep of Desert Springs. He's not saying that. He's saying, you, sheep of Desert Springs, there are people who want to enslave you. You be careful too. Just as we, the elders of this church, have to watch out to protect you, you also have a responsibility, according to Paul right here, to watch out yourselves. To be careful that no one seeks to take you captive. And there's a possibility that someone could carry them off as captives or plunder. That's a dangerous term. Basically, to kidnap them, to steal them, and enslave them is what's going on here. And so Paul is pointing out that there is a possibility for the professing Christian the phrase I just used, to return to spiritual slavery through false doctrine. And in this sense, they become willing slaves. It's, It's like the people who actually send in their money to get the holy hanky. Okay, They willingly become slaves in the pursuit of something that they already 
if they're really Christians, have in Christ, but that is already offered to them in Christ, how is it possible to be made slaves again? And Paul starts off with this phrase of philosophy and empty deceit. Now, some of you might think, oh, is he talking about Aristotle and uh, Michael Polanyi and, uh, you know, philosophers? No. He's not using it in that sense. He's not talking about Plato. Uh, he's not talking about, um, suddenly all of their names just disappeared from my brain. All of them guys. <laughs> Sartre. Okay, He's not talking about philosophy, how, how we use that term, philosophy. For instance, the Jewish historian Josephus, who was a contemporary of Paul, used philosophy, the word philosophy, in, in, to, to describe the different factions within Judaism. Okay, So it's, it's, a, it's a way of thinking, a way of life. It's not necessarily the technical term you know, philosophy that you went to college and you studied and probably all of you forgot, okay, uh, aside from a couple of things. And so <clears throat> he's, he's using this term sort of in a sense of an alternative worldview or, or an alternative understanding of Christianity. They, they've received something from Epaphras, and now there's a different sort of version of Christianity that's being proclaimed by the false teachers that, you know, they're... They're trying to deceive them and take them captive through this. And he says that this is philosophy and empty deceit. It promises something full, but it's really empty. Sort of like that's those commercials you see, you know, on TV to buy something that's gonna change your world and you get it, it's a piece of junk. That's this. It's big promises, little payback. Okay? No payback. And so Paul then begins to help us understand what he means by philosophy and empty deceit. He uses a a series of three statements to explain what he means by that. Those according to's. Okay, those are how he's explaining this philosophy and empty deceit. And the first is according to human tradition. And if we look at what Paul says about the, the human mind outside of Christ, we recognize one thing that we have to admit is that the human understanding is darkened. And so this human tradition is the product of this darkened understanding. Okay, It's not fully in accord with, with the gospel and in ultimate truth. And we see that even Israel struggled with this idea of the the human traditions. We saw that in the reading from Isaiah, if you caught that. They had kind of set aside some of God's commands for human commands. Jesus says the same thing. Why do you set aside the commands of God for the traditions of men? There's sort of this idea of human tradition that is at work. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, but with but such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so Peter there is talking about the same sort of thing. There's a futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers. It's a human tradition and understanding, and you had to be redeemed from it. It was not a good thing. It was 
a bad thing. So human tradition is not a good thing. It's bad. And often it is filled with rules and regulations. This is what we do and this is what we don't do. And I'm a bachelor this weekend. I was slicking the channels. They had the, 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 the renewed version of Footloose. I'd never seen that before. It was worse than the original version of Footloose, so don't bother with it. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was just about rules, thinking that rules will protect you from sin. It's a really gross misunderstanding, really, of what sin is. In, in my house, one of the rules was don't wear a hat in the house. That was, you know, that's one of the things my mom would do. And I remember one time t- t- talking to my father, what, are you Jewish? Like, is my dad praying? This would be good news <laughs> if my dad were praying. So it's just sort of insufficient and inconsequential sorts of things. So it's a, these, this empty deceit is, a, is, first of all, according to human tradition. Secondly, it's according to the elemental and spirits. Spirits is a supplied word, trying to interpret the word that is found there for elemental. These are the foundational things. It can be used for the ABCs, the one, two, threes, all of that kind of stuff, the basic fabric of things. We find it used in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, to refer to the elementary doctrines. And he's saying, you, you shouldn't have to, you know, we shouldn't have to tell you those elementary doctrines again. The ABCs of Christianity, you, you should be ready for something else. Okay? It was to their shame that they were being told that. But that doesn't really... Okay, so what does this kind of word mean? How is it kind of used here? I mean, these elementary things, these basic things, why are they supplying this word spirits there? Well, that's because of here and the context in Galatians chapter 4. We find them used, or this term used, of spiritual beings that people think they must serve. Galatians 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved okay, to the elementary principles of the world. He gets back to that in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. And the, he mentions in that context of things that are not gods. And so while Paul is using it in both these places, the context is very similar, and so the same sort of idea. It's not just elementary principles, but there are sort of these spiritual beings that they think they have to satisfy They think they must serve. They think are important. All of these things, to me anyway, start to sound like an early form of Gnosticism that has Jewish roots. It's interesting because there's a thing called uh, Merkaba mysticism. How many of you have ever heard of Merkaba mysticism? Nobody? I'm shocked. (laughs) Okay. I hadn't even heard about it till this, well, two weeks ago when I was preparing for this. 
It's interesting because they, they take it out of Ezekiel chapter 1. It is in Ezekiel 1 that, that Ezekiel has a vision of God. And so th- this group of Jewish mystics was seeking to receive similar visions of God as Ezekiel did. Uh, they decided that, oh, so what if he's a prophet? We can have this too, right? Yeah. So how they kind of went about this was, first of all, they were very legalistic. You know, they had to have obedience to all the law of God, and so they were very ascetic. They they were very much focused on um, obeying everything that they had in the law. Not only that, but there was a certain technique that had to be employed employed to in order to do this. And additionally, they because of this sort of idea of Gnosticism that was there, they couldn't come into direct contact with God himself, but they needed the help of angelic mediators to bring them into the presence of God, which of course you can't receive unless you do the right technique, and and if you don't have the obedience that's necessary, it's not going to happen. So it's very very legalistic, um, but it also has this idea of rites and rituals that you have to perform correctly, and then you get to see God. What's going on in, in Colossae sounds like a Christianized version of that. We're going to see this kind of fleshed out in, in later uh, texts, but they're basically being, being told that to, they need to be very ascetic, meaning they have to follow the rules. There are, there are things that, you know, there, there's lots of rules about what, what you can and cannot do. Okay? They're, they're trying to appease these elemental spirits. Okay, so this sounds very much like something that is going on here in Colossae. The third thing that is going on here that that, though that Paul uses to describe this empty deceit is actually negative, not positive, because it is not according to Christ. Now they probably, of course, wouldn't you know see it that way. They weren't necessarily Christ denying but they were supplementing him. They were saying that Christ himself is sort of not enough, and he needs to be supplemented with these additional things so that you can have the fullness of spiritual experience that you really want and that you really need. You know? And actually, it led them away from Christ. And so, you know, false doctrine is not really morally neutral, but really it is an attempt to steal you from Christ himself. Secondly, Christ, the fullness of God, is sufficient to fill us. So first you've got this idea of they're they're trying to take them astray with this empty deceit. Well, what's the fullness, the real fullness? And it's Christ. Paul reminds them precisely of why it's Christ alone by himself who is sufficient. You know, if you, if you have a healthy diet, you probably don't need to take supplements unless you have a medical problem like I do, I think. Yeah, I got, I got medical problems. Um, you know, if you eat right, you don't need to take all kinds of dietary supplements. And so what he's saying is, is that you're not eating right. Okay, you're eating spiritual junk food. You're passing up the reality, you know, 
The holidays were just here. How many of you just binged on junk? <laughs> yeah. You know? And when you binge on the junk, there's always more junk to be binged upon. It's almost like your stomach, you know, two minutes later, oh, i got to eat more food. Okay? Because you're not eating something healthy. And your body is craving nutrients. It needs this stuff to exist. And so it wants more. But you always go to the wrong stuff. And that's exactly what the false teaching does. When you have Christ, you don't have to go elsewhere. You keep going to Him. And so he reminds them that the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus in bodily form. He is referring to the incarnation, which we just celebrated with Advent. Now, maybe your mind doesn't work the way mine works, and that's probably a really good thing in most contexts. And I thought, this is not like okay, how Christ or God dwells in us by the Spirit. This is not that. Okay? Because he kind of this is in bodily form. Okay, so he's not merely saying that Jesus was a man like you and me and the Spirit of God dwelt in him fully and so, you know, he had this really good experience. He's saying the fullness of deity was found in Jesus who was in bodily form. Two natures joined together forever in one person. That's what he's talking about. It's something greater than, um, you know, God dwelling in us. Because, you know, anyway. This is not an idea of the divine nature sort of, um, you know, uh, well, sorry. My brain is not functioning properly. The divine nature or deity is fully present in Jesus. Okay, who was in bodily form, in other words, who was human. Jesus is not a superman. He's not some sort of enlightened man like, say, the Buddha was, is claims to be. Okay? There's not like merely a spark of divinity in Jesus. Fullness of deity is in Jesus. Jesus wasn't on the road to godhood. He was God. And so we see all of those false understandings of Jesus Christ being found, you know, um, corrected in this passage. This one little phrase from Paul. This is essentially a death blow to Gnosticism. Because again, for Gnosticism, spirit good, body bad. Okay, the material world, bad, bad, bad. But here you have the fullness of deity is dwelling in a material body. That's not supposed to happen with Gnosticism. And so God isn't just having contact with creation. He's actually entering creation by taking part of it to himself in order to save creation. Notice what then Paul says. Astounding. You have been filled in him. Perfect tense. Past action, present result. 
He's not offering a promise for the future. He's talking about a present reality and one that ought to really, if we stop and think about it, stun us. What the false teachers promised is only found in Christ. This is not like some Shirley MacLaine out on a limb kind of thing. She was popular years ago. Everyone's probably forgotten who she is. If you watch Downton Abbey starting tonight, she's on this season. I don't know if it's tonight. But <clears throat> but remember, she, she realized that she was God. That was her out on the limb experience and really, really weak limb. This is not that. That somehow, I'm God too. What this is, is because I am united with Christ, okay, by faith, I have been filled with God. That's different from what Shirley MacLaine was talking about. In other words, they have all of Jesus by virtue of their union with Christ. In other words, all of his resources are theirs. This is what Peter alludes to in 2 Peter chapter 1, by which he has, been, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So that idea of partakers of the divine nature doesn't mean that I become divine, but it means that I have fellowship or participation with the divine nature via my communion with Christ, my union with Christ. We Protestants don't talk about this a whole lot, which is strange because... Paul talks about it all the time. In other words, because we are united with Christ spiritually, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us access to the fullness of Christ. There's no sort of second stage Christianity. What it is is maturity. Okay, it's not like the Matrix where, you know, download the software, I know Kung Fu. That's not what we're talking about, okay? Although you are full, you have been filled with Christ, you are not perfect in Christ. Or Paul wouldn't have had to say what he said at the end of chapter 1, that he continues to proclaim him so, so that he might present everyone mature in Christ or perfect in Christ, okay? And so what happens is we're in the process of, of becoming mature in Christ, thought of it sort of this way this morning, I think. I forgot my iPhone. I was going to bring it and show it to you. Not that it matters. You all know what one looks like, right? Pretend I have an iPhone. It's like my invisible map. Um, If you have an iPhone, like some of you, many of you do, we all have essentially the same iPhone. We all have access to the fullness of the iPhone. Okay? Now, you can be like my father-in-law, who has an iPhone, and essentially all he does with it is make phone calls and occasionally, I think, look at, use the map thing, the map app, okay? 
he does not utilize or take full advantage of the fullness of the iPhone. See, then you have people like me who, you know, I, I use some of the fullness. I use more of the fullness than he does because I check my sports scores and I have my Facebook on there and I can check some of my email and I got a couple other things on there, you know, that Amy has downloaded for me. So now I have a flashlight app. I can use my phone as a flashlight. That's important when the power goes out in the monsoon season, folks. Okay? You know, and, I, and we've got the, when we travel with the kids, we've got the, the, the white noise generator so they don't hear me snore. Okay? It, I don't think there's anything powerful enough to not make anyone hear me snore. Um, but see, okay, we do, I use it for FaceTime. I, I utilize it more fully. Ken has probably had his as long as I've had mine, and I can guarantee you he used, utilizes more of the fullness of the iPhone than I do. He might even be up there with Matt, who's the, who might be the king of the iPhone. I don't know. Okay? What I'm saying is we all have the same phone. But we draw on the richness of that phone to different degrees. And that's what Paul is essentially saying. You have it all in Christ, but you need to draw on it to a greater degree than you do now. If you're pop-pop, you need to draw on it more so that you become more like Steve. If you're Steve, you need to draw on it more so that you become more like Ken. If you're Ken, then you need to draw on it more so you become like Matt. And if you're Matt, you keep drawing on it so you become like Jesus. (laughs) But do you understand? We have it. And so what Paul's saying is growing into it, making, drawing on those resources that we already have in Christ. Don't be looking to rites and rituals and all these other things to somehow, you know, make you full. It's precisely when we don't feel full. I mean, how, how many of you when I, when I said that idea of, um, you have been filled, immediately said, I don't feel full. You know, there's nothing like, um, certain parental, parenting moments to make you feel empty. I have those. Sometimes I go into the bathroom and, and sit down and just put my head in my hands. Cause I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm emptily, I'm empty, I'm powerless, I'm clueless. You know, there's nothing like losing your job to make you feel that same sort of thing or to be in the midst of a relational conflict. There are all sorts of things that can make us feel empty. And the question is, where do you go when you feel empty? Are you going to Christ or are you trying to fill that with something else? Are you trying to fill it with people? Are you trying to fill it with technology like iPhones? Um, are you, you know, are you trying to fill it with food? I just saw a report today that of religious people, Christians are the ones who have the most obesity issues. We have too many potluck dinners. Okay? <laughs> That's what it's saying. You know, but, but part, we, we don't often recognize the idolatry of food. So we 
try to fill up that emptied hole with, you know, lots of chicken wings or something. Um, Christmas cookies. Sex. Money. Power. It can be filled with any number of things. Instead of Christ. I love what Calvin says in this little sort of semi-pithy sentence. For those who possess Christ have God truly present and enjoy him wholly. That's That's where we ought to be. Enjoying him wholly because we do actually possess him truly if we are in Christ. And so then we see, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, our transformation is through that vital union, that one flesh principle sort of thing. It's progressive. It's not instantaneous. And we're going to kind of plod our way through that aspect of what's going, what, how that takes place, that transformation takes place. But we see that Christ, who is full of God, has filled us so that we don't need supplemental spirituality. Which leads us to our third point. Connected to that is that Jesus rules out intermediaries. One part of Gnosticism, like we talked about with that mysticism thing, the Merkarabah mysticism, don't ask me how to spell it, uh, it's on the other page, is that you needed intermediaries between you and God. Remember they had the angels that came and kind of took them sort of in the presence of God. That there's somebody who stands between you and God because you really can't come in contact with the divine because you're sinful and they're holy and it goes even beyond that. But Paul says that we're joined to God directly through Christ. And if that union is a spiritual union, the spirit is, is, so to speak, an intermediary, but he's God too. So that that corrupted form of Christianity that was being taught in Colossae had them thinking that they had to appease these intermediaries. They had to bribe them. You know, bribery, it's how business gets done in most of the world. Um, if you go to Mexico, and, um, you know, we've been, I've been in buses, we've been pulled over, it's count the gringo and see what the bribe is going to be. Okay. Ah, oh, there's 15 rich-looking Americans. <laughs> I get a good bribe today. You know, the Congo, all of Africa. That's that's how all of everything gets done. I had a friend who who uh, went to Africa to help out with Samaritan's Purse for a vacation. She has a funny view of vacations. Um, well, they wouldn't let them distribute the food and supplies to the people unless they gave a bribe. Humanitarian aid couldn't be distributed unless a bribe was given. They're thinking that they have to bribe these spiritual beings to receive spiritual benefit. And so Paul says to them that Jesus, who, with whom you have been filled, mind you, is the head of all rule and authority. He reminds them again, he said this a couple of times, he brings it back up because it's really important for us to understand because we forget this, that Jesus created those things and he rules over them. He is supreme. Don't try to make them happy. You don't have to. 
though these things are rebellious, Jesus has reestablished his rule over them in the cross. As we see in verse 15, he's triumphed over them. He's the victor. Don't try to appease the loser. When the boss loves you, you don't have to deal with the underlings. And sometimes um, Christians, you know, or people are trying to be sidetracked, looking for Mary's help, the help of the saints, the help of angels. No. Why would you go there when you have Jesus? If I'm best friends with the president, why am I talking with a congressman? I'm not friends with either. But you understand? It's dishonoring to Jesus to do that. He's honored and glorified when we go directly to him. It says Dick Lucas has said, the Christians are freed from the dominion of darkness and need fear these demonic powers no more. Stop trying to bribe them and appease them. And so you, brothers and sisters, do not need to live in a fear of demons. You don't need to live in fear of Satan. Sometimes you don't even think about it that way, but you kind of do. Maybe you watched one too many scary movies, you know. Like when I was a kid, I was worried about the, the squirrels in the attic, thinking it was the exorcist, you know. Um, yeah, why did my parents let me watch that movie? There are lots of movies that let me watch they shouldn't have. Okay, but you understand, we sometimes live in fear of these things, like as if they're greater than Jesus, and they're not. We're secure in Christ. And so these false teachers were offering the Colossians empty promises and empty threats. And if these people embraced them, then they would be destroyed. Because they're moving away from Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to live in spiritual reality according to Christ. Paul talked, to, uh, sorry, Peter talked about that, that section from 2 Peter chapter 1, because we have his great promises. Because we have Christ, we live in accordance with his promises and his warnings. Because we have Christ, you know, we, we go to His Word to understand who He is and what He does and what He, the grace that He offers us. That's my plug for daily Bible reading. Um, it's important. So we need to live in light of those spiritual realities. Not as if they don't exist, because sometimes we, we can get into that mindset of, just going on with life and feeling overwhelmed and forgetting how we commune and have fellowship with Jesus in word and prayer. And so spiritually, we often feel weak, empty. We fall into the trap that we think we need something else, something new and different. And actually, maybe we do, if We've been looking somewhere besides Christ. 
But in union with Christ, we have been filled. We have what we need to grow and mature in Christ. But the point is, do we go to Him or do we avoid Him? You don't need ecstatic experiences. You don't need rituals to appease mediators. You don't need ascetic practices to somehow earn brownie points with God. You need Christ, received by faith, as He's revealed in the Scriptures. And joined to Him, you will have what you need to deal with your sin and your sorrow. Let's pray. Father, there is no one in this room that does not have sin and sorrow. And often we try to deal with it apart from Christ. And that's when we get in trouble. Father, uh, help us to, as we go through this letter, to really grasp that in our, not just our heads, but our hearts. That we would be grasping on, onto Jesus as if He is the only one who can help us because in fact He is. Give us a greater understanding of our weakness. That we might be humble. That we, that we would see our dependence upon Him and, and know it's a good thing, not a bad thing. we really understand how it is to live this life of faith with Him. Sink this deep into our hearts. For as Luther said, inside each of us there is a little religious fanatic who if we let him will run roughshod and get us to do the very things we need to avoid. Because we struggle with relying on Jesus. So be at work in us that we might more fully rely on Him, that we might more fully draw upon the resources that are ours in Christ, and that we might be moving toward maturity in Christ. Only you can really make that happen, Father. We ask that you would in Christ's name. Amen.